Bible with you, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And we are coming to a big transition in the book of Matthew in that we are coming to the third of five discourses in this gospel account, or extended teaching sections of Jesus. And this one contains parables. It's exclusively parabolic in its teaching. We've seen some parables up to this point, but this is fully parabolic. And so today may seem a little bit different as we come to the word, because as we come to a section that is parabolic language, we need to do some pre-work to understand rightly the parables that are coming. Oftentimes we rush into parables and, and we misunderstand them or misapply them, and we want to set them in their context. And so I have four goals that I want us to do today as we start into Matthew 13 over the next two or three weeks. Today I want to set the context afresh for these parables. These, these teachings of Jesus, they are sitting in a certain spot in Matthew's gospel, and we want to remind ourselves of that context. And then I want to examine the explanation that Jesus himself gives in our text today as to why. Why does he make this change? Why does he move into parables? Why speak in these riddles? Why does he do that? There must be a reason, so what is that? So that's the explanation. Thirdly, we'll look at an overview of the entire Matthew 13. This is the structure of the parables. And then finally, at the end, we will get into this first and introductory parable that starts off Matthew chapter 13. Okay, so that's kind of the roadmap for this morning. We're going to look at the context, an explanation for why these parables, an overview of the parables, and then finally that introductory parable as we begin into this wonderful, mysterious, beautiful chapter that we're going to overtake over the next two or three weeks. So starting with the context, where do we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel as we come to these parables? Well, we know that up until this point in Matthew's gospel, there's been this consistent proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom. We've seen this over the past year as we've been inching forward in this gospel account that John the Baptist came on the scene. He arrived and he said in chapter 3 verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's here. Get ready. Prepare thyself. And he goes on in the next verse and says, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You can sense the urgency. Here it is. The kingdom is here. The nearness of the kingdom. And then Jesus came after him in verse 17 of the next chapter. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the next chapters record him spreading this gospel like crazy. Wherever he went, this same message. And we, then we come to chapter 10, verse 7, and he starts sending out his disciples. You remember this. So it's been John the Baptist, and then Jesus, and then Jesus sends out his disciples with this message. And he says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's near. And so up until this point of Matthew's gospel, we've had this consistent message. The king is here and the kingdom is near. That has been the message. And along with that message has come some pretty clear teaching about the kingdom as well. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. We went through that. Very clear teaching. Here's what the kingdom is like. Here's what eventual kingdom participants will look like. Very clear what he was saying. Clear teaching about the kingdom. So up until now, Jesus' ministry has been one really we could characterize as urgent and excited, right? And rebuking and inviting. He wants Israel to come to him and prepare themselves for the coming of this long-awaited kingdom. Now, as we've also seen, it hasn't been without its opposition, right? There has been, throughout this first ten chapters of Matthew's gospel, there has been a growing resistance to Jesus' 
ministry, and it came to a boiling point, as we saw in chapters 11 and 12, when at long last Israel's leadership found themselves face-to-face with Christ himself. And they had this tete-a-tete. They had this back and forth, eyeball to eyeball. I was thinking about it this week, and it reminds me, if you, back in the day, you went and watched an NHL hockey game with two teams that had known bruisers on their team. And you're just waiting for that moment. You knew at some point in the game, these two are going to drop the gloves. It might not be the first period, and you watch them. Second period, no, eventually it's going to happen. They're going to be eyeball to eyeball. They're going to figure this out. And kind of in the first chapters of Matthew's gospel, that's kind of been how it is. Jesus comes on the scene. The Pharisees are over here muttering under their breath, and you know at some point, at some point, they're going to get eyeball to eyeball and have to sort this out. And that really comes up in chapters 11 and 12. And at this pivotal point, we saw Israel, who is represented by their religious leaders, Israel as a nation, represented by their religious leaders, they looked Jesus in the eyes, and as we saw last week or the last couple of weeks, and they said to him, we don't believe you, and we don't want you. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 24, it says that, but when the Pharisees heard this, Jesus' teachings, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. In other words, they're saying, you're no servant of God, as, I- as Isaiah predicted, this servant, this messianic figure. You're no, you're no servant of God. You are a pawn of Satan. We don't want you. We saw in chapter 12 that Jesus labeled that rejection of him as unforgivable, we saw, and irreversible. It was finished at that point. So the question becomes, as we turn the page into chapter 13, you'd say, okay, what now? Like, what is there left to do? I mean, we still have 15 chapters of this book. What is he going to do? I mean, he's been rejected by the very people he came to save. What is the king going to do at this point? Israel has been waiting centuries for this messianic king. He arrives, offering them just what they long for, and they say, get out, we don't want you. And the king says, okay, well, uh, I guess it's time for a change of tactics. And as we come to chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, we find Matthew recording this significant shift in Jesus' ministry methodology. You know, he's responding now to Israel's response to him. They rejected him, now he's going to change tactics. And what we find from this point on in, G- in Matthew's Gospel is no longer is the kingdom at hand. We saw that all the way up to here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, get ready, never again is that Matthew good. The kingdom is no longer at hand. It's no longer being offered to that generation because they turned it down. They turned it down with an an unforgivable, an irreversible way. They turned it down, and so that offer has been pulled back. That offer is gone. They didn't repent and believe Jesus, and so that generation will not have the privilege of seeing thy kingdom come. Gone. Now, we are still waiting now for that kingdom as 21st century believers. What Israel expected was a physical reign of Christ from Jerusalem, from David's throne, over Israel and over the world. A kingdom that its its borders spread globally. And that's what they were expecting. And so when they said, no, thank you, Jesus said, okay, you don't get the privilege of experiencing that kingdom. I'm going to wait for a generation that does. I'm going to wait for a generation of Israel that does repent. And we know from reading the rest of the Bible that that day is coming, that right now under centuries of being moved to jealousy because of this era of the Gentiles, God dealing with the Gentiles, moving Israel to jealousy, one day they will come under immense tribulation that will turn the nation back to the Lord, and they will repent, and then the kingdom will come. But for now, we are in this parenthetical age of redemption history. The kingdom was offered, it was rejected, pulled back, and we are still waiting its coming. And so it's in this odd transition period that now Jesus turns from Israel saying, repent, I'll bring the kingdom, to now he's going to 
start turning to his disciples and preparing them for what's coming ahead. He's going to start preparing them for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection, and start preparing them for the church age, which we now enjoy. But a big change. And there's precedent for this in the Old Testament, if you think about it. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but you look back to the time that Israel was brought out by God's power out of Egypt. They're going toward the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And God says, this is a land I prepared for you. And they come right to the border. And you remember Kadesh Barnea? You remember that, the kids' song, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and 2 were good. Right? What did they see when they spied on Canaan? 10 were bad and 2 were good. And 10 of the spies, they looked. You got this, the hand signals over here. Someone knows it, right? The hand actions. They, they got there and 10 of their spies, the majority, not all, but the majority of Israel said, we cannot do it. It's too big. The men are too big. We just cannot do what God has told us we can do. And because of that, God said, okay, then this generation will not see that promised land. You will not get to experience the blessing that I had right for you. That generation had to wander and die off. And another generation who responded differently would get to enjoy it. That's kind of what we have with this kingdom. This generation, first century Israel, had rejected the kingdom. And another generation, future, and still yet future for us, will get to enjoy the inauguration of that messianic reign. So the proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom in Matthew's gospel, here at this turning point between chapters 12 and 13, it stops. It stops and something comes into its place, something new. If you look at chapter 13, the first two and a half verses, we get a little sneak peek. It says in verse 1, that day. What day? The day he was rejected. See, Matthew's tying it back into that day. It's the same day that they said, we don't want you. And he said, this is an unforgivable and irreversible sin, this rejection. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat down. And the the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. We say, what's changed here? Certainly the crowds hasn't changed. His popularity hasn't changed. That was kind of always there. His accessibility really hasn't changed. He's always been there to teach. But what has changed is the parables. We've seen a couple of illustrations of parabolic teaching already in Matthew, but not to this extent. And the fact that it is so new is evidenced by verse 10. If you scan down, the disciples saw this as new. In verse 10, it says, And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? They notice something different. You know, they hear story time with the king and they say, well, this is new. This is changed. Something is different. What's with the riddles? And so they go to their Lord in private and they say, what are you doing here? Why would you shift to this teaching methodology in parables? And so now that we've set the context that the parables sit in, now we go to the explanation. And Jesus himself gives them one, starting in verse 11. Why would he switch to these Parables. He's been teaching so clearly before why these parables now. Verse 11, he begins his explanation. Jesus answered them, To you, that's the disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, that is the multitudes, the crowds, to them it has not been granted. So what is the purpose of this parabolic teaching well the purpose is twofold according to Jesus right first the parables are meant to reveal they are meant to reveal previously unknown truths that's what mysteries the word mysteries means in the new testament something that God has not revealed to previous generations but now he is unveiling he is uncovering 
That was one of the reasons that he started to teach in parables, that it would reveal these previously unknown mysteries about the kingdom and, and reveal them to certain people, right? In this case, dealing with the disciples. You're going to get new information about this coming kingdom, information that no other generation has ever been privy to before. Now, our ears perk up. We want to know more about the kingdom. What, what is he going to tell them? This is new stuff that never before, not even the Old Testament, they had this information. So the parables are to reveal these things to his disciples. But we also saw that at the same time, the parabolic teaching is going to conceal. Right? It's revealing, but it's also concealing at the same time. Conceal these new truths, these mysteries of the kingdom. Conceal them from the multitudes, from the crowds, those to whom, it says in the text, it has not been granted to know. Now we would just think, okay, maybe your reaction is, why would Jesus ever not want people to know truth? Why would he ever conceal truth from anyone, these crowds included? Well, this is why we began with the context and setting the context in place. It's so important because in Matthew, Jesus had just been, we learned in verse 1, that day had just been formally and finally rejected by Israel. Just then. So through parables, Jesus is cutting off their information supply. They rejected him, so he's cutting off their information supply. In fact, he's really putting into practice what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, don't cast your pearls before swine. Remember that? They'll be trampled. Don't give these beautiful gospel truths to people that don't know what to do with them and they ignorantly just throw them around. And so he's really putting that into practice here. He says, he says post-rejection, he's not going to waste these novel kingdom truths, these beautiful unveiling realities of the kingdom to come. He's not going to waste them on these, these people who will ignorantly trample them. Gone. You rejected it. You've hardened your heart. You get no more. Look at 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, he continues his explanation. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So in other words, those who responded appropriately to the declaration of the nearness of the kingdom, when he, John, his disciples came proclaiming it, those who responded rightly, they'll get more information. They get more revelation, more details, more clarity. And with all of that comes more excitement. We know that. When you have more clarity of what's coming, excitement grows, anticipation grows, conviction grows. To those who responded rightly, they will get more clarity, more information, mysteries revealed. But those who rejected, who scoffed, who ignored the declaration of the kingdom, and there were lots of those, weren't they? Those who did that, those who scoffed at it, they will not only have no more information, but they will lose what they've already been given. Namely, the offer of the kingdom. It was here. You reject it, that's taken away. You don't get that anymore. First century Israel, as with every generation of people, was a mix of believers and reject rejectors. It was all mixed together. And only as Jesus can, he continues his earthly ministry, starting in chapter 13, in such a way that he blesses the believers and judges the rejectors all at once in the same methodology he goes teaching parables and he's going to bless those who believe with more and judge those who don't believe in fact the judgment is listed in verses 14 and 15 as he goes to isaiah in their case speaking of those who reject in their case the prophecy of isaiah is becoming is being fulfilled which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, 
With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Those in Israel who, had, Israel who had plugged their ears to Jesus' message, who had covered their eyes to all the proofs that we've seen up until this point, all the amazing miracles, prophecy fulfilling power on display, those who ignored all of that, they're now under divine judgment as predicted by Isaiah centuries before. But in contrast, verse 16 and 17, but blessed are your eyes, speaking to the disciples, because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Just as the judgment is going to be uniquely potent and powerful to that generation that looked Jesus in the eyes and said no, so the blessing will be uniquely potent to those who got to experience and responded to Jesus rightly. He talks about these righteous men, these prophets of old. You just think about it, like Abraham and, and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel. All of these righteous men, they prophesied of things to come. They talked about the Lord. They called Israel to come and repent. And they never got to see what these nobodies, these disciples got to see with their own eyes. They predicted Messiah is coming, the servant. He will rescue us. He will redeem us. And Jesus plops down to a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. He says, I'm here. And he said, you don't understand. You have got the privilege that so many righteous and godly men wanted to see before and never got to. What an honor. What a blessing to this first century group of those who would believe. I, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact that, you know, when we get to glory and and for eternity, we have discussions with these people. We talk to Ezekiel. We talk to Mary. What was it like to carry the word made flesh in your womb? And we'll hear stories about that. And I've said this before from up here. I think that those Old Testament saints are going to look at us and be like, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit living in you? That's amazing. What was that like to walk with the Lord with the help of the power of God residing in you? They didn't have that. We have an advantage today. We have a revelation today that men of old, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, long to see prophesied coming and we get to experience it. What a privilege. But it comes with responsibility as well. We respond rightly to the privilege we've been given. So Matthew 13, it marks this big shift in the ministry tactics of our Lord. You know, having been rejected as king, Jesus begins teaching in parables. And as he explains it, so as to both reveal and to conceal at the same time, to disclose new truths to those who believe, and simultaneously to obscure those precious realities from those who don't. Now we're very familiar today with the, whether experientially or just in hearing the, the phrase, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We know that economically as a maxim, but have we, thought, have we ever thought that that's the same spiritually? That the rich get richer, the poor get poorer spiritually? That what you and I do with the pearls of divine truth that God provides and contributes to our walking, what we do with them when we're given them, it really determines which path we begin to follow. There's two paths. I mean, you go to Psalm 1, and it clearly lays them out, the path of the wicked, the path of the righteous, and we're either walking down one or the other, right? And what we do with God's divine revelation, with those pearls he gives us, if we respond with a softness and, and love it and take it inside of us, we are taking steps toward consistent divine enlightenment. He is showing us more and more and more, and we get to know him, the conviction deepens. But at the same time, if those divine truths are given to us and we, we're apathetic to them or, or we, we dismiss them out of hand, we are taking steps down toward a hardened, hardened stupidity, really. We become increasingly 
blind, increasingly deaf. And no one is neutral. We are always taking steps down one path or the other, depending on what we do with God's revelation that he gives to us, just like here in the first century. The parables were used by Jesus to reward those first century Israelites on path number two and to judge those on path number one. Okay, so now we've seen the context of the parables as well as Jesus' Jesus's explanation as to why he's using them. Now, before we study this first parable, the parable of the sower, which is well-known. If you've been in the church any amount of time, you've probably heard it many, many times. But before we look at that parable, I want to provide a brief overview of all the parables together because they are one teaching unit in chapter 13. And so I want to give an overview, and then we'll get into the bits and pieces over the next two or three weeks. So if you look at chapter 13 as a whole... If you have your Bible, you can look and follow along with me. We have these eight parables that are listed in this chapter. Okay, eight of them. We have, if you look, the sower in chapter three, uh, sorry, in, in verse three and following, which we'll look at in a moment, the tares and the wheat. We have the mustard seed, uh, the leaven or the yeast would be another word for that. We have the hidden treasure starting in verse 44. We have the pearl. We have the dragnet or the fishing net in verse Uh, verses 47 to 50, and then we have this household manager in the closing two verses of the teaching discourse in verses 51 and 52. So there's eight in total, eight in total, and they divide neatly into two groups of four, okay? So this is how they're structured. The first four, the setting of which is found in verses one and two, which we've already read. It says, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and a large crowd gathered to him. Okay, so the first four are said in, in, uh, in the presence of the huge crowd and outdoors by the sea. Verse 36, after four parables, it says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. Okay, so now we're into the house and privately with his disciples. So four publicly and four privately. Four outside and four inside. And because of what we know of the, the purpose or the, the explanation of why these parables, because it's to conceal and to reveal, this is very interesting because we have both sets of people We have both those who are hearing and those who don't hear, hearing these parables. Now, look again at the eight parables. And each of these parables, six of them begin with a clear introduction as to what they're about. A clear statement. Parables, for those of you who don't know, the word literally means to cast alongside. So you have a point that the parable speaker wants to say, and they cast a vision or a picture alongside it so you can see the parallel. illuminate it or to conceal it in this case as well okay so these these parables they're basically extended similes in this case in Matthew chapter 13 if you remember back to high school simile it's a comparison with like or as and in the middle six of these eight parables I know this is technical but it will come together we need to understand the full orbed explanation of the the teaching to understand the bits and parts but the middle six parables they all are introduced with the same or basically the same saying look at verse 24 for starters Verse 24 is the parable of the tares among the wheat. And it says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. You know what he's talking about there, right? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And he's going to give a comparison, a parable. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So there's no confusion. What are we talking about here? This, this collection of parables is to talk about, and as Jesus has already said, mysteries about the kingdom. But that's six of eight parables. Parables one and eight do not have that introductory comparison statement. 
And that's because they are an introduction and a conclusion to the teaching, respectively. What we'll find in the last parable, which we'll get to who knows when, but we, what, we, what we'll find there is really a conclusion. It's not about the kingdom per se, like those six. It's concluding the whole teaching and telling us how to apply it. And what we're going to find today in just a few moments, this introductory parable, is just that. It's telling us not necessarily about the kingdom exactly, but telling us how to learn about these kingdom parables. Okay, so what we're going to see today is basically a primer for what will follow. This is how to learn to best understand what he's about to say. Okay? So now we've seen, again, the context is important, an explanation of why he made this change, and we've seen an overview of all of the parables together. We have this introduction, six parables about these mysteries of the kingdom of God, where he's revealing new, beautiful truths to those who have ears to hear, and then a concluding parable that says, this is how you then must live. And that's what we're going to see over the next two or three weeks. And we're going to get into next week those kingdom mysteries, those things that the disciples and we are privy to because we have ears to hear, hopefully. Now, let's come to this first parable, finally. This first parable. And this is this, this simile. And again, as you come to chapter 13, verses uh, 3 and following, we find a, a parable that's very common. We've heard this oftentimes called the parable of the soils, but in fact, it's really the parable of the sower, as Jesus will describe it in a moment here. And this is what he says. The crowd gathers, he's in the boat, and he sits down, and verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And notice how that parable closes. He who has ears, let him hear. Even at this point, this opening parable, this introductory parable, Jesus is hinting at what he would soon explain, which we already saw, that only some get to understand and hear these parables. This story, these parables, these similes are not to be understood by everyone. It's only to be grasped by those who have ears to hear. And the disciples, as we know at this point, they do have ears to hear. Right? In verse 16, he had said that. He said, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And they come and they ask him for an explanation of this parable. They say, what do we make of this thing? You have this sower casting seed everywhere, things growing, things not growing. How do we understand this? And, and Jesus, in verse 18 and following, he provides an interpretation for this parable. He doesn't for all of them. But for this one, he does. And obviously, when Jesus provides an interpretation, we probably want to default to his interpretation of his own parable. And this is what we find. Okay, in verses 18 and following. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The seed the sower is scattering is explicitly told for us. It's defined for us in verse 19 as the word of the kingdom. Remember, context is important. What have we talked about here? The nearness of the kingdom, and now he's turning to the disciples. The kingdom has been taken away. So the word of the kingdom, that is what the seed is. It is not the gospel as we understand it, by grace through faith in Christ. It is the word of the kingdom. Those two are definitely connected. They, are, uh, they, they relate to one another, but they are not the same. We want to keep those very clear in our minds. So here we have the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom that had was to repent, for the kingdom was near. That was the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom was that Jesus was the king and he was in their midst. And now we're on the welcome mat of the word of the kingdom getting a new paint job with these new mysteries being revealed. It's things about the kingdom. This coming kingdom, the timing of the kingdom, what it's going to be like, who's the king, when is he going to reign, what's his reign going to be like. Those are all words about this messianic reign. The word of the kingdom, whether it was its nearness or its nature, or its soon-to-be-revealed nuggets of information that he's going to get. It had been scattered. Right? It had been thrown about liberally. The sower had gone about, whether the sower is John the Baptist, whether the sower is Jesus himself, or whether the sower was the disciples, or honestly, whether the sower is you and I today. We are scattering the word of the kingdom to those around. We are scattering it as much as we can. There was nothing wrong with the seed, obviously, and there's nothing wrong with the sower. Okay? The, the variables in this parable are the soil and what the soil produces. The response to the word scattered by the sower. And while there are four types of soil listed in this parable, there are really only two categories. There are the fruitful and there are the unfruitful. There are the fruitful and there are the unfruitful. And remember in the context, fruitfulness is talking about the growth, the multiplication of the understanding revelation. We want to keep that in mind. In fact, in verse 12, it says explicitly that, for whoever has to him, more shall be given. What? Information about the kingdom. More will be given to them. And he will have an abundance. Shall we say a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold? He will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. I want to be very clear here. We are not talking in this context about good works. Those who hear the, the word preached and if they turn around and they don't do good works, then they're probably some different kind of soil that was fruitless. That's not what we're talking about here. That may or may not be true, but in this parable, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about information about the kingdom revealed to us by the Lord. And if we respond rightly, more revelation, more revelation. Sure, that can produce good works down the way, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about understanding the kingdom program, understanding things about the king. And those who respond rightly get more. So to make that very clear, we're not talking about good works. We don't want to confuse categories when we come to the word of God. And parables are oftentimes right for those confusing of categories and confusion that comes off of that. And the produce, the what comes off of that then is legalism. That is the end result. If we misunderstand these. Well, you're not serving the poor. You're not praying more than you did last year. You're not doing these Christian things. Then, my friend, you are rocky soil. You are rocky soil. Maybe you've heard that before. You are soil. Your heart is soil beside the path. I mean, if you're not doing anything with what you've learned, and we just want to say that this parable is not teaching that. We're talking about understanding the Lord and more revelation given to those who respond rightly. And as we see from the parable, and as we know just experientially, most hearers are not fruitful. Right? Most hearers are not fruitful. They don't learn and learn and learn. The roadside soil in this text is the hard heart that hears the word of the kingdom but does nothing with it. 
It does nothing, hears it, but does nothing with it because of their apathy. They shrug. Certainly there were people in the first century like that. Jesus came declaring, John came declaring, the disciples came declaring, and some people were like, ah, whatever. I got life going on. You know, I got things to do. I got bills to pay. I got cattle to raise. Whatever the case may be. And they just shrugged. They were hard. They were uninterested. Or maybe they were um, antagonistic, like some of the Pharisees were. But either way, they were hard. And because of their hardness, Satan comes and he snatches that seed. It's not interesting. Satan knows the power of the word. He knows that once it starts to germinate, it really does its work. So any apathy, any slowness to respond, Satan comes and says, I'll take that. You're not getting that. Right? And he comes because there's some apathy, some hardness. Not the, the soil next to the road. The rocky soil hears the word, gets worked up about it, gets excited about it, but there's no depth of conviction. It's a superficial acceptance, and, and when persecution comes, it's easy to give up and reject. You think about it in terms of the first century, I mean, Jesus was doing miracles. Like he was healing people. It was pretty easy to get whipped into a frenzy, I'm imagining, right? Do you hear this guy? He over there and healed a bunch of people, and they come and they swarm in droves just to see him, see this miracle work. They want to be around him. But Honestly, they don't really care about the message of the kingdom so much. They just want to be in the presence of this miracle worker. And so when persecution comes, whether from their family or after Jesus ascends, there's persecution all over the place, right? After that happens, their conviction isn't deep enough, and they just fall away. Say, ah, I was here for the show anyway. It's not that big of a deal. The weedy soil also, they hear the word of the kingdom, the third soil. They accept it, but it's quickly distracted by the worry and wealth of the word, of the world. These things take their attention away from the revelation of God. They hear what Jesus says. They say, oh, I can get on board for some kingdom. I'd love for the kingdom to come. I want what you're saying. Then they turn around and say, oh, there's so much to do at home. They look at their bank statement, their first century bank statement. They just say, oh, there's so much to worry about. And they're distracted from the beauty of that kingdom. Same way, it becomes unfruitful. All three of these soils, unfruitful. They don't respond with that full understanding of what Jesus is saying. And so their understanding stops right there. Now, notice that in all three of these cases, the word is heard. Every time, the word is heard. The seed is scattered. But something in every case, whether it's apathy or slowness or worldliness, something steals its fruitfulness. Stops it from growing into that abundance of 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Something stops it. Something leaves these hearts seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing. But as we know, there's one soil that is exemplary. In verse 8, he says, And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some of a hundredfold, some of sixty, and some of thirty. This final soil is, is fruitful, obviously, to varying degrees, but it's all good. It's good soil. Whether it's thirty, a hundred, a millionfold, whatever, it's good soil. It's flourishing and understanding and acceptance and excitement of the realities of the coming kingdom and its king. This soil and, and this soil alone not only hears the word of the kingdom, But here's the the key word of this parable. Understands. Not only hears, but understands it. This is the difference in the whole passage. The whole passage is drawing us to this. In fact, if we just scan through again, this has been the contrast all the way through. In verse 13, it says, speaking of those who don't, speaking of the bad soil, he says, nor do they understand. They, They don't hear and they don't understand. In verse 14, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. Verse 15, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in return, and I would heal them. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes. And then finally, in our final verse of the parable, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and 
understands it. That's the key. All these other soils, they heard. They heard the word, but they failed to grasp it, to take it in, to chew on it, to take it seriously, to understand that this is the word of God and to fully grasp. Maybe they don't understand everything about the kingdom. I mean, we already know there's still mysteries to be revealed, right? But they understand its significance. They understand that it's here. They understand the weight of the message, and they take it seriously. And those people are blessed with an affluence, with an abundance of information, ultimately these mysteries that are going to be revealed. And so we come to the end of this introductory parable, one that's well known. And a question obviously comes across to us today, what is the soil of our hearts? This is where we check our soil. What is the soil makeup of our hearts? If you're here today or listening online, you're hearing the word of the Lord. You're hearing the word of the kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom today. You're hearing about it. The seed is being scattered. The seed of divine revelation is landing upon your ears and eyes. The question is, do you understand it? Do you understand its significance? Do you understand the weight of it? Do you understand from who it comes? Not me. Who cares about me? Do you understand that it's coming from the Lord to his people? Do we take it in? Do we understand it? What kind of soil makes up the soil of our hearts? Perhaps you're here today or listening online and you're, if you're honest, you're apathetic. You're just, you're shrugging. I I don't really care. I don't see the urgency of this. You're apathetic. You you hear these things and you you don't really feel any urgency or any power or maybe even any believability. And it's pew, 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 pew. The seeds are just bouncing off your heart. You know, rock hard heart. And if you're honest, you just, you shrug. This this, this seed is more or less just bouncing off you. It's having no effect. It cannot germinate. It cannot penetrate. Or maybe you're shallow. Maybe you're shallow. Maybe uh, you get caught up in the music and the movement of this morning. And by the way, wonderful singing today. It is so good to hear one another singing again and, and the team that leads us so well. But it's easy in a time like this, especially coming out of a time when we've been separated. We come here, we hear this music, we see these words, and we get whipped into a frenzy. We say, oh, and the corporate prayer and everything, it's exciting, right? It's so exciting. And then we leave here and persecution comes. We go into our workplace, into our school, and uh, it just goes away quickly. It's a shallowness. It's not that excitement is wrong. I hope not. I was excited back there. My kids were dancing. I hope it's not wrong, right? But it can't be enough. It can't be all that there is. That type of shallowness cannot withstand what our world has for us out there let alone the world in Afghanistan right now and and in all these other countries where it is dangerous to be a Christian. Persecution comes, and if we don't have a a deepness, a deep conviction, it's going to be trouble. It's not the right type of soil. Or maybe you're distracted. You you love the Lord, you love his word, but but what's waiting for you at home when you leave here? The bank account, the worries of the world, those things, they're just ready, ready to strangle it out. You leave here with a genuine excitement. I love the Lord. It, what, what Andrew read today about the honeycomb, the, the word of the Lord, it is a honeycomb. It's so sweet to me, but I'll be honest. There is a barrage of opponents out there when I leave. It's worrying, it's wealth, all that stuff. It just chokes it out. Maybe that's you as well today. You know, any of those above, any of those three soils, we need to understand that we're, we're sacrificing fruitfulness. We can't be fruitful with those types of of soils. The poor get poorer. You hear the word of the Lord, you love it, but it doesn't thrive and, and grow and become more clear as to what is coming and more clear about who the Lord is and what he's doing in your life. It stops. It stops growing. We obviously, we want to be 
good soil. Hearts that hear the word and take it in, understand it, so that it multiplies and increases our conviction and excitement, our love for the things of the Lord. That's what we want. I've experienced this before, and maybe you have as well, all these soils in my life, if I'm honest. There was a time in my life where I was not walking with the Lord. Maybe I've shared this with you before, but at that time, my family and I were in the habit of having morning devotions and then emailing them to one another, so as a kind of an accountability thing. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I wasn't living a life that pleased the Lord, but I still do those devotions. Because I didn't want an email in response to like, hey, where's your devotions? So I just kept having them, kept having them. Uh, And I remember one morning I was working through 1 John mindlessly, ears not hearing, eyes not seeing. And I came across 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Anti-hypocrisy. You better get your act together. If you're going to say that you're a Christian, you better better start living like it. If you want that fellowship. At the time, pew, 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 pew. Not not a big deal. But it was a bit of a splinter. The Lord dug that seed into my heart over time. Just kept on like the good sower he is. And fast forward a year and the Lord did a providential work and took me out of that circumstance into a a good church that, that took the word and sang the word and prayed the word and preached the word. And the contrast, and maybe you've experienced this, the contrast between those two, when you have a a soil that's been tilled up by the Lord, ready to hear his word, and how it grows and gets excitement, and the Lord becomes so clear, and the conviction gets deeper, and everything is more beautiful. If you've experienced both of those things, you know, I don't want to go back to that hardness of heart. You know, I don't want to go back to that choking thorns and thistles. I don't want to go back to any of that. Um, You've experienced that. By God's grace, he has shoved those seeds into your heart in spite of yourself. We pray for that. We want to be that good soil. We ask the Lord, make us good soil. Till up my heart if it's hard. Use the roundup, the spiritual roundup, whatever you need to do. Kill those thorns, whatever you need to do, Lord. I want that growing conviction. And I'll be honest, I pray for this church family every week that we would have collectively and individually soft hearts for the Lord. I mean, I've been told several times, especially when I first got here, just reminders, you know, Bible's our middle name. Just a a reminder that Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, we better be in the Word when we're here. Amen to that. I want us to be a church that not only study the Word because we want to know God and we want to know things about Him, we can do our biblical history, all that kind of stuff. No, I want to know the Word because I want to know the God of the Word. And He's revealed Himself here to me. I want to know how much He loves me. I want to know how secure I am in Him in spite of myself. I want to know all of that because and only then can I go out into this world with conviction and roots deep and undistracted and lead people toward Christ, that Christ that we so love and we sang about today. That's the prayer that we have as a church, that we want to be soft-hearted. And so maybe you're in a, a habit of this already, or something like this. I close with this. I know I'm going long today, and I apologize for that. But this is how we, this is how, uh, we can cultivate this type of soft heart. Simple. Maybe you're in the habit of doing this already. If not, try this. As you come to the Word, whether it's midweek sermon you're listening to, Sunday morning, your daily devotions, whatever, First begin by saying, Lord, prepare my heart. That's it. Whatever you got to do, round up it, till it up, whatever you got to do, just prepare my heart. I want to be soft. And let's face it, there's a lot of cares out there, a lot of weeds, a lot of rocks in my life. Lord, you got to till it up. It's got to be you. Prepare my heart. And then during, maybe as you sit down and and the teacher comes up and says, turn in your Bible, say, Lord, you got to sow it. Take that word and knock it into my heart as hard as it may be. I need you to knock it. I need you to put it in there. And then maybe as you leave, as you get up from your chair, you walk out back to your car, just say, Lord, you gotta, you got to water it. you got to nurture that seed. 
I need you all the way. Lord, I need you. Didn't we sing that today? I need you every hour. I need you. I need you to prepare my heart. I need you to take that seed and in spite of myself, put it in my heart. I need you to nurture it. Lord, I want a soft heart. We want a soft heart. Because it's then when we are filled with the word that someone cuts us and we bleed Bibline, it comes out of us. It's just in us all the time. Then we are gracious people, convicted people, loving people. We're the type of people that lead people to a God that is worth worshiping and worth our adoration. That's our task today. Sound good? Sounds good. Let's pray and ask the Lord for that today. Mm -hmm.